Hello and welcome to the Moonshots podcast. It's a very special episode 35. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and as always, I'm joined by Chad Owen in New York. How are things, Chad Owen? Great, Mike. Aside from uh, some post-cold uh, voice strangeness, uh, things are going well. How's uh, your morning been in Sydney? Sydney is incredibly chilly this morning, but hey, it's winter. It's got to get cold at some point here in, in uh, the usually sunny uh, Sydney, Australia. I'm all warm. I am ready. In fact, I want to admit to all our listeners that I'm rather fired up for this show because, Chad, this is going to be the almighty, one of the greatest, most exciting shows we've ever done. Why don't you share with everyone the topic, the guru that we shall be diving into and delving into their world? Who is this very special innovator? Yeah, well, we've been on an Apple kick here recently, and this... uh this Apple train is not over yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, our last show was about Steve Wozniak. And this show, we're going to be talking about the other Steve, Steve Jobs, co-founder mm-hmm. of Apple. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, you know, the, the JC to all the Apple uh, fanboys out there in the world. <laughs> Indeed. And, uh, you know, the funny thing about Steve is very complex guy, multidimensional, but... I think we have to recognize that he has been at the head of not only one, but two companies. I think some of our listeners might not fully appreciate that Steve Jobs was not only founder and CEO of Apple, but he actually was the CEO of Pixar. And just as a reminder, you know, Apple, super heavyweight champion of the technology field, Pixar, by far the most successful Hollywood studio in history, their success per film, their earnings per film, far outperforms anybody else. And he was instrumental in both companies. I mean, if you had done one, you'd be very happy. But to have done two makes this a very special show. I mean, Chad, when you think about all the things Steve Jobs can mean, what does he mean most uh, for you? How, what role has he played and, and his inventions played in your life? Well, I, I, I did want to remind our listeners that we did a show on Ed Catmull, who's also there at the beginning of, uh, of Pixar. So if you're, you're curious about the, the early beginnings of, of, of Pixar, be sure to, to check out that show. That was show number. That was a fair while ago, I think. I think Ed, I'm going to guess, was in the low 10s, somewhere around there. What do you think? Maybe 16, 15? Eight. Show number eight. That early. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was one of the early ones. Hmm. Uh, we, you know, we had a, had a great guest on that show too, um, Simon Banks. So, but to, to answer your question, Mike, Steve for me is an innovator on two very interesting fronts. And I see him as an innovator on the kind of physical, you know, creating amazing physical experiences with products mm-hmm. and on one side and then pairing that with the software and the backend uh, UI and user experience together into products and services that we all take for granted today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was remarkable in blending hardware and, and software in a way that, you know, Microsoft and many other companies have attempted to do, but no one's really come close, let's be honest. 
I think the other thing I would just to add on top of that is he did all of those things, Chad, but can you think of someone that has disrupted so many industries? Like if you think about he disrupted animated film, he disrupted the PC market, the phone market, he disrupted the music market, the software market. Like if you actually go through the list of things, his inventions are wildly disruptive. I mean, every other in, I mean it's it's a, it's actually far greater than the Amazon effect. I mean, Steve Jobs messes with a lot of people's other businesses through the art of innovation. He's that disruptive. Yeah, his innovation, yeah, his innovation, it's, it's interesting you bring up Amazon. I believe that Steve Jobs' innovation model, if you will, is very different from Jeff Bezos's. That's right. Whereas we we're always talking about the flywheel mm-hmm. at Amazon. That is, that's Jeff Bezos's kind of core thesis on, on innovation. Right. Whereas I think Steve Jobs is a, is much more of a complete disruption, blue ocean, you know, c- creating new markets, yes. uh, kind of innovation from whole cloth. You know, like taking a, a complete divergence, yeah, um, from what has come before. Whereas Jeff Bezos is, it, I think it's still innovative, but it's much more tied to kind of the current reality and what customers' current needs and focuses are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the um the the knock-on effects of all the innovation of Steve Jobs is just off the planet because I want to remind you that back in 2007, uh, Apple was far from being the greatest smartphone manufacturer in the world. And in fact, a lot of people thought it was crazy that they were making a phone. But look at in just such a short time, in just over 10 years, they make more profit per phone than the rest of the industry combined. They are truly a super weight, uh, super heavyweight champion, if you will, uh, when it comes to that. But he, the crazy thing, Chad, is he did this with Pixar too. Pixar is incredibly dominant in the animated film industry. And if you had said 15, 20 years ago that Disney was not going to be the dominant force in animated film, you would have been laughed out of the room. Uh, mm-hmm. Ironically, they ended up acquiring uh, Pixar. But I think the sheer scale and effect on business, on our personal lives, you cannot understate the impact of Steve Jobs. And I just think it's so exciting to to delve into this world because what happens is when they have this great disruption, it's not only a company. I would propose to you, Chad, it starts to become like a cultural force. It starts to become something bigger than a company. It's sort of, and you mentioned the fanboys and stuff like that, but really it becomes a way of life. It becomes a status symbol. It becomes to have meaning far beyond that of just a product. And one of the crazy things is it's not only their products that uh, are permanently marked in our minds and hearts, but it's even their advertising. I mean, this, these, where does it stop? There is just innovation all around Steve Jobs. It, it's quite remarkable, right? Yeah. And rather than you and I go a little fanboy here and talking about Steve, I'd love to just jump right into the clips here because we, we've got some, some really great ones. So I'll actually uh, just start out with, with Steve doing a, a really great reading. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently, 
They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Boom. I mean, there it is. So that was taken from their Crazy Ones uh, TV ad. And that was part of a, a bigger campaign called Think Different, which is really the source of how we all perceive Apple today. And it was one of, one of their greatest campaigns. The coolest thing is it was not their most successful one. There's one other that we will talk about later in the show, which was even more successful. And this speaks so much to the cultural crossover that Apple has. And I think, Chad, a lot of that came from the fact that Steve, as much as he was into technology and software and engineering, he was also a man of the arts. And I think that's what really stands him apart. He was, you know, part art, part science. And I think that's why he's had such a cultural and business effect on the people he worked with, on our lives as consumers. And I think that it's, he stands alone because he had that multidisciplinary characteristic. And, and, and Chad, I was just wondering, can you really think of many current tech CEOs that strike you for having both that art and science, that philosophy and engineering intersection? There's still very few, isn't there? I'm not really sure that, that I know of any exactly offhand. And uh, I'm struck at the kind of prescience of Steve reading that because this was in what the early 2000s when this campaign no no a little bit before then so in the 90s but at the time I he probably wasn't thinking oh well I'm talking about myself although maybe he included himself in mm. in, in the geniuses but I think certainly today we would we would kind of lump him in oh. with for for viewers that or listeners that haven't seen this it, it's lots of imagery of just all of the greats yeah. you know, uh, throughout time, Leonardo da Vinci, Einstein, Gandhi, Martin yeah. Luther King, you know, all of those kind of greats. And I think, you know, we could almost just insert a picture of, of Steve Jobs in, in there as well. But his deep curiosity and, and multidisciplinary thinking that you mentioned, Mike, I think is, is definitely part of what drove him and Apple to create the kinds of, of products that they did. Whereas their, their contemporary companies like HP and, and others were solely focused on, we're building machines for engineers. And Steve mm -hmm. was way ahead thinking of like, well, you know, how can we get graphics in here and typography and, and things so that he could open it up to the world you know, of, of creativity, not just science yeah. and engineering. I think the big takeout for us here is as obsessed as we might like to be with a certain skill, Steve Jobs is a great showcase, a great argument for the breadth of perspective and a worldview that's not singular, but it's more diverse and inclusive and takes in different ideas and, and almost contrarian things and mixes them all up. And I think that serendipity is where you get some real, real magic. And certainly someone that recognized the magic of, of Steve Jobs was for many years, they were kind of on again, off again, 
friends than enemies or frenemies, however you want to say it. But Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, has some really, you know, great benefit of hindsight because they worked together for, for more than 20 years in different capacities. And we've got this next clip, which is really going to take us back to the beginning of Apple. And it's going to refer to some of the really tremendous things that Apple did, not only of recent, but of the really early days. So let's now listen to Bill Gates talking about the beginning of Apple. You know, what Steve's done is quite phenomenal. You know, if you look back to 1977, that Apple II computer, the idea that it would be a mass market machine, uh, now, the bet that was made there by Apple uniquely, there were other people with products, but the idea that this could be an incredible empowering phenomena, Apple pursued that dream. Uh, you know, then uh, one of the most fun things we did was the Macintosh, and that was so risky. You know, people may not remember that Apple really bet the company. Lisa hadn't done that well, and uh, you know, some people were saying, okay, that general approach wasn't good. But the team that Steve built, even within the company, to pursue that, uh, even some days it felt a little ahead of its time. Uh, I don't remember that Twiggy disk drive. And, 128K. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Twiggy disk drive, <laughs> yeah. yes. Uh, Steve gave a speech once, which is one of my favorites, where he talked about, in, in a certain sense, we build the products that we want to use ourselves. Uh, and... You know, so he's really pursued that with incredible taste and elegance that has had a, a huge impact on the industry uh, and his ability to always come around and figure out where that next bet should be uh, has been phenomenal. You know, Apple literally was failing when Steve went back and uh, reinfused the uh, innovation and risk-taking that have uh, been phenomenal. So the industry's benefited immensely. Uh, from his his work. Yeah, there's so, so much in there from Bill on Steve. What's interesting to me is how Bill calls out a, a few of, of Steve's traits. One of them is this kind of editing ability of Steve's to kind of mm -hmm. bring the company on back to build things that they should actually be building. And I think that's it's portrayed differently in different accounts, you know, kind of depending on where you yes. go to, yeah, to yeah, learn yeah. about how things were handled. And I, yeah. I understand that, uh, you know, certain products kind of have a more fraught history <laughs> than others. Yeah. But, you know, we, we, it's resulted in, you know, more successful, more widely spread, more innovative products. Absolutely. Well, did you also hear the interesting uh, crossover that he has with the WAS? building products that we wanted to use. And do you remember how in the Woz show, he was continuously talking about build for yourself, you are your customer. That's mm -hmm. also very nicely tipping in um, to Martha Stewart, be your own customer. And uh, that's how he rekindled and frankly, he saved Apple by getting back to its roots of building products that, you know, he wanted to use things that he would pr be proud to to share with his friends and, and family. And I think yeah. it's... I think it's a big lesson for anyone building a product right now is build something that you desire, that you really want to use yourself. If you're not the customer, you're going to struggle deeply in having that empathy and understanding of what the customer really wants. Mm. Yeah. And frankly, it's just, you're going to be spinning in circles 
for, for forever until until you do have that kind of problem uh, solution fit yourself mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. before you can then go and and test it on on others. And, and mm-hmm. Steve had a very in hindsight, you know, he calls it a great opportunity of coming back to the company. So he could be on the outside working yes. at Next and founding Pixar and saying, oh, Apple's doing all of these things wrong. Here's how I would do it. And then he was actually, you know, he actually was given and took that opportunity, you know, seized that opportunity to come back and then again, build things that he that he actually wanted to use. Yeah. And you have to remember too, that what he built at Next was essentially OSX. So the main thing that came back was a Unix-based operating system, which I don't know if you remember, Chad, after a lifetime on Windows, when I finally got on OS X, I was like, oh my gosh, it doesn't crash. It just doesn't crash. And do you remember Windows machines used to crash regularly back in the day? And no, you well, they, the- they still do. It did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I really honestly can't even recall the last time my Mac has crashed. I know it's crashed once or twice but in the last few years. But, well, you know, here's the thing, uh, Chad. What's really interesting is, is when, when people, when innovators and creators and product designers are their own customers, they get this strong mission about them and they know what they're about on the inside so that they can tell actually better stories on the outside. And uh, what we're going to do now, and I promised this in in early part of the show, we're now going to talk about Apple's most famous ad. It's called the 1984 ad made by my favorite film director, Ridley Scott. And this ad was an absolute game changer. It, it did a number of things. First of all, it's generally considered the most effective ad ever run because they paid for one placement of the ad. That placement was on the Super Bowl. And in it was so controversial when it when it was aired uh, in the halftime break that it set the world on fire. It was the real talking point after the game and for the days uh, after. But here's the other thing: this ad was so powerful because it didn't talk about the product. It talked about the mission behind uh, what Apple was doing and really set them up and and really was the forebearer not only of Think Different. But it's this mega brand that the company's gone on to, to, to become. So we're going to listen to a guy called Lee Clow. He's from a very famous agency called TBWA, and they made the ad way back then in 1984. And what I want you to remember as we listen to this is that what we take for granted now is that halftime break in the Super Bowl is full of these very interesting, epic, multi-million dollar ads. This all started with Apple, with their ad. They were the first to do this and they started what is now a billion dollar industry, which is Super Bowl advertising. So let's have a listen to Lee Cloud telling the story behind this very iconic ad, 1984. Today, one year after Lisa, we are introducing the third industry milestone product, Macintosh. So there was this challenge from Steve, I gotta introduce Macintosh. It's got to be dramatic, it's got to be famous, it's, it's got to be different. We had a meeting where we presented a whole bunch of thinking that went into launching Macintosh. He thought it was brave, he thought it was great. It was the board of directors thinking it was really stupid and irresponsible. And There was a moment in time when the board was trying to pull the plug on all the funds and have it not run, and he was there with Wozniak and he said, well, I'll pay for half of it if you will. 
they didn't have to come to that, but they did make that uh, overture at one point. So you open on this place that represents the future with people marching to a central hall. Our idea was that Big Brother represented the control of technology by the few. Lots of people decided, partly by the bluish quality, partly by the competitive uh, situation uh, Apple found themselves in, that Big Brother represented IBM. And that uh, really wasn't the intent, but it probably worked on that level as well. But running down one of the corridors was a girl who you saw glimpses of. She came bursting into the back of the room and she stopped and swung once, twice, and then heaved the hammer. And a giant explosion. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. 1984 wasn't designed to only run on the Super Bowl. It was designed to have a media life beyond the Super Bowl, but the board of directors at Apple decided it was irresponsible since it didn't show the product and the product wasn't even available yet to continue running it. And that becomes almost part of the legend. Oh, and the genius of just running it once on the Super Bowl. Every news show the next morning was basically saying, game was okay, but did you see the commercial? Our vision was more about the idea of how the world was going to change because of computers, not that we were changing the Super Bowl that day. But it did create a phenomenon where people started thinking, designing advertising specifically for the Super Bowl and keeping it secret and having it be a surprise. All those things were kind of born out of 1984 running once. Yeah, I mean... I was born in 1984, but that adds uh, still is, is one of my favorites. And one thing that's really stuck out to me is that the product is nowhere in the ad. And I don't, I don't know that the product, did the Macintosh make it out by the end of 1984? <laughs> well, it was famous because the, 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 not only was the product not in the ad, the product was not even available. <laughs> But can you imagine the demand for it once it finally became, it had already become such a cultural phenomenon and the product wasn't even out? Isn't that just, I mean, Lee Cloud there, he admits that there was some, you know, convenience in how it all played out, which might, you know, in retrospect, look like a well-planned situation. But can you imagine that both Steve's said, look, guys, we'll pay for this ad ourselves. We believe in it so much. Now, doesn't that tell you everything you need to know about two founders doing what's right? Yeah, and again, Steve Jobs reaching into the multidisciplinary world to kind of have the foresight of going to someone like Ridley Scott or, or yeah. and in in collaboration with 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 TBWA. Yeah, I don't know of many or any companies at that time that had done that in such a way. I mean, it, it is kind of like a short film that you're watching. It is. And I know it's inspired so many other kind of similar ads to this day. And, and of course, Apple is still known for its its uh, innovative ad campaigns and, and the way places products or not inside of its advertising. Exactly. And it shows you, you know, I love the conviction. I love the contrarian thinking. I mean, he's literally doing think different. They, they do it themselves. 
They did something that nobody at the time was doing. And it shows you the power of his strategy, the power of his thinking and his ideas, the way he was able to find opportunity through thinking differently to everybody else. He had the confidence and the courage to think different and to do bold and courageous things. And I think that's another thing that I think we can all take something from. I mean, that story from Lee Cloud just confirms to me how courageous Steve Jobs was. Don't you Don't you feel that when you listen to that, Chad? Yeah, an- another thing that, that comes, but Steve Jobs was, he did not lack conviction. And I think this ad shows his conviction for his positioning of Apple against all of the other players. Right. And you can kind of read some of the subtext and think, oh, well, you know, this is a knock on IBM. But I, to Steve, I don't think it really mattered. He was just going so far afield and saying, you know, we are so different and unique and only, you know, for this kind of person that it created this magnetism for everyone to flock to the Macintosh product. And that was yes. you know, even more successful than the Apple II, which had been an extremely successful yes. product yeah. uh, you know, five, six years previous. So I think what this clip is, is teaching me is the, the value of choosing and owning a very kind of unique and different position yes. amongst the rest of your, your competition. Because c- clearly, if you didn't think that Apple was different in no way, like an IBM before this ad, after this ad, you're like, yeah, yeah, of course, like you want to root for Apple because Apple is, you know, the woman that throws the hammer that breaks the screen and everyone yeah. else are the, the, the corporate drones, you know, inside the dystopian machine. But let's build on that. I think you can only have that conviction if you are the customer, if you're working incredibly hard on solving problems that your customers face. I don't think you can buy that in. You know what I mean? You can't. It's mm-hmm. got to be there. And I think that it's his thinking. It's the, the, this, this boldness that he has, which is, which is really appealing. Now, we And have, big bets. Oh, yeah, big bets. Yeah. So the, in the same way that this, he was willing to put his own money and, and borrow from, from Steve as well uh, in, into this 1984 ad after, after founding Pixar and, and pulling all with, with Ed Catmull and, and others, pulling all the resources you know, behind the launch of Toy Story, the, the first animated feature, he essentially bets the company on, on the success of, of that feature. And so here's actually a great clip we have from Ed talking about what it was like uh, working with Steve as Pixar was being, being prepared kind of unexpectedly for an IPO. Mm. Uh, we're out trying to figure out how to make this movie. And uh, we were a group, though, that had been through failures together. So we'd all experienced that. And it was really difficult to figure this out. We made a lot of misestimates, and the first versions didn't work very well. Um, but we, as we got closer, um, it became apparent that we were onto something really big. And I have to say, John Lasseter believed right from the minute that this is going to be gigantic. But from Disney's point of view, it was a boutique film. So they didn't put any consumer products behind it because they didn't see it being anything. Uh, but as we got into the last year, it was now apparent it was, it was big. And so Steve said, okay, now we are we are going to revolutionize this industry. Um, But we're also in a position where, because we've got the experience here, not only do we have the first film out, we will probably have the second film out before anybody else can get into this. Um, 
But the deal that we had with Disney, frankly, was not a very good deal. We got like <clears throat> three to five percent of the profit or something like that. So it was not, not all very, that. Not very good. Not very good. So, <clears throat> so Steve called John and me together and he said, okay, <clears throat> our deal lasts for three pictures. And at the end, we're on our own. Michael Eisner will realize as soon as this film is successful that he will have just created his biggest nightmare. So he will not want the contract to end. So when the film comes out, he will renegotiate. And when we renegotiate, um, I want 50% of the profits. But if we get 50% of the profits, that means we have to put up 50% of the money. So in order for us to put up 50% of the money, we have to have the money in the bank. Therefore, we should go public. So John and I are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a little early here. <laughs> Let's prove our worth first. But, but Steve being Steve had a compelling way about him. Um, so we put on the road show. Uh, we went out and showed pieces of the movie. Uh, but what he, what, what he told people as we went on the road show, so I, I went out, with our CFO went with us, Florence Levy, um, and Steve, and um, as we went out, the argument was that the, the, the company will go public one week after the movie opens. So you will see that we're changing the industry. And so that's the prep. So the movie comes out, it opens huge, it gets incredible reviews, and then the next week we go public. And it was the biggest IPO of the year. It was bigger than Netscape. Incredible. It was an incredible thing. What a story. I mean, talk about bold faith, doing what you believe in. And Chad, just to frame this, they went IPO a week before their product launched. I mean, <laughs> is that the most harebrained scheme you've ever heard of? Well, a, a week after. The, the product launches, and then they, then they do their IPO a week after. Oh, that's right. That, just a week after your first product comes out. I mean, come on. But is, wasn't it brilliant for somebody who on one hand is crafting beautiful products, has the ability to think in terms of business strategy, he knows the terms of the contract with Eisner at Disney. He backwards engineers. He said, well, we don't want to be in that position. We're going to need half the money if we want half the profits. Let's IPO. And you could hear in Ed Catmull, wasn't he? Ed's just like, you're like, can you imagine Steve saying, hey guys, we're going to IPO the week after? And you can just see Ed going, what? Are you crazy? You could hear that, that just the boldness of this idea must have been earth shattering. I mean, they must have been totally focused on the product. And then from left field, in comes Jobs. Hey guys, we're going to IPO a week later. <laughs> it's just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, and, and to put some some numbers on it, so in today's dollars, Toy Story had an opening opening gross of $60 million, which for a first 3D animated film uh, is pretty incredible. I mean, I, I know today's blockbusters have $150, $200 million releases, but way back in uh, in 95, that, that, that's a huge thing. But here's the kicker. So Toy Story grossed in 1995 $30 million. Pixar IPO'd the next week at a, at a market cap of $1.5 billion. Oh my gosh. And of course, you know, Jobs being the, the main founder of that company, I think he had somewhere around 80% of that stock. So, you know, he was taking a, a huge risk and bet there. Yeah. But he had assembled, and if you really want the inside story, you know, go back and listen to episode eight with Ed Catmull. They had really created an amazing 
team yeah. uh, of experts to pull this off. And they spent years creating Toy Story. Yeah, and many it, failures before that, Chad. It's yeah, important to yeah. recognize they failed a lot before they got there. But I think once Steve recognized what they really had, he was like, I'm all in. <laughs> he pushed all of his chips out mm-hmm. and, uh, and, it, and it paid off. And that is strangely reminiscent of what Musk did when, you know, both Tesla and uh, I think was it Tesla and Solar City were both running out of cash, and he wrote his last check. He had no more money, and he just wrote. Well, before before that, when he started, when he infused cash into SpaceX to get their, you know, their successful launches, and he he wrote the last of his PayPal money, and then uh, they got the contract from NASA. That's right, yeah. And I, sh- I think, again, it all comes back to doing something that you love, solving a problem that you see and just working like crazy on it. But what a um, brilliant story. I mean, contextually, it was bigger than Netscape. Uh, I remember when Netscape IPO'd in 96, everyone was like, the internet is here. So it was the biggest, you know, shiniest internet stock IPO, and yet Pixar outperformed it. That's just how brilliant Steve's idea was and and created billions of dollars in value instantly, not only through the launch of the film, but the raising of the capital, which in the long term, Disney ended up buying back. Just a stunning story. I mean, and this is the, 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 the history that we've just painted um, with all of these revolutions in terms of what they did uh, technology. I mean, the the we've talked about the Apple II and the Mac, but don't forget there was the iMac, the iPod. We talked about OS X, but also don't forget they have created the world's most beautiful retail stores, which are the b- world's most highest performing stores. They created iTunes, the iPhone, and so on and so on and so on. I mean, this is uh, a, a tremendous history. And what's very exciting is for the second half of the show, We're going to start to get into how they actually did it. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ideas that that lay in that success? Like, what are they doing? What are they thinking? How are they approaching the world to create so many blockbusters, whether it's at Pixar or Apple? All of it kind of comes back down to some philosophies and thinking of Steve Jobs. There's so much more to, to, to get into here. Um, Before we get there, though, Mike, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I know that you have been fortunate enough to, to work your way through the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. And so I wanted to bring back a, a segment of our show where we talk about interesting books relevant to our, our innovators. And um, just first, for anyone that has passing interest in either the history of Apple or Steve Jobs uh, as an innovator, would you would you recommend the book? And maybe what some of your favorite passages and or anecdotes were? Yeah. Um, I would say that this is definitely a, a book worth reading. Um, it's right up there, I think. I think the way I would phrase this is I think this book is more helpful than the uh, dramatization in the Steve Jobs film from 2015. Um, mm-hmm. That was pretty good, um, but I think what the book's, book does is it, it really explores some of the complex relationships Steve has. I mean, man, he has a complex, really complex personal life. Um, he was abandoned as a child and adopted. You know, there are these themes that came out of the book that he 
had this famous thing called the reality distortion field where he would just refuse to admit facts if they didn't subscribe mm. to his worldview. It explores his pursuit of perfection. We've talked about the art and science and how he loved the Beatles and, and Bob Dylan. He loved design. Um, I think it, so it explores, explores some of those uh, themes really, really well, it, his artistry. And I think that one thing we probably, I think younger members of our audience probably don't remember, but before Steve Jobs came along, uh, the technology world was these awful beige boxes. I'm talking about boxes that were like this off-white color, terrible-looking monitors. And Steve came along and he said, look, I love the likes of, uh, uh, do you remember Dieter Rum's show? Uh, very inspired by him. He brought good design into technology. It literally didn't exist in the category before then. And so the book really celebrates, you know, his love of design, um, you know, how to build a uh, uh, product and, and just the, he gave everything of himself to his products. I think one of the uh, bitter twists of, of the book is that it sets up that he gave so much to his products that he really didn't put enough effort into his family. And one of the sad things the book, you know, touches on is, you know, he abandoned his own daughter in the same way that he was and tried to patch it up later. But, you know, very complex guy, uh, gripping read. Uh, Walter Isaacson is, is, very, very good writer, very famous writer. So you'd be you'd be doing very well just for inspiration and a good story to to get into the book Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Yeah, it's it, it's been on my Audible list for a long mm -hmm. time. It's just yeah. I, I see the uh, the hours needed to invest in it and just um, haven't haven't had a chance to to dig into it. Hopefully, with uh, the the stories we've heard about. Uh, in the beginnings of of Apple and the Apple II back in the in the seventies, and you know, a Apple and Microsoft started just like a year or two apart. I think you know, sometimes people forget that, right? Uh, all the way up to the nineteen eighty four ad and the launch of the, of the Macintosh, and even founding of of an IPO of Pixar in, in the mid nineties. And as you've mentioned before, we, we've skipped over so so many other things. You know, just like, we could really just uh, do a show on the. The, the individual innovations and, and product kind of accomplishments of, of oh, yeah. Apple while, while, while Steve yeah. was there. But like you said, you know, we really want to dig into some of the strategy and, and ways that, that Steve operated mm. Apple mm. so that we can get some takeaways and learn how to apply it to our own businesses. So um, the first clip we have in this next block is... According again, we have to take Steve at his own word. Um, he did mention his his reality distortion field. He's he's talking on stage with uh, with Bill Gates uh, at a conference in two thousand seven about how he sees how he views Apple, uh, specifically kind of in distinction to companies like Microsoft. So I'll just let him speak about what he sees as the secret of Apple. If you if you look at the reason that um, the iPod exists and that Apple's in that marketplace, um, it's because these really great Japanese consumer electronics companies who kind of owned the portable music market uh, for a long, long, invented it and owned it, uh, couldn't write, couldn't do the appropriate software, 
couldn't conceive of and implement the appropriate software. Because an iPod's really just software. It's software in the iPod itself, it's software on the PC or the Mac, and it's software in the cloud for the store. And it's in a beautiful box, but it's software. Um, if you look at what a Mac is, uh, it's, it's OS X, right? It's in a beautiful box, but it's, it's OS X. And if you look at what an iPhone will hopefully be, it's software. And so the, the, the big secret about Apple, of course, not so big secret maybe, is that Apple views itself as a software company. You may be fundamentally a software company, but you've been known, at least to your customers and to most journalists, as the company that kind of pays a lot of attention to integrating software and hardware. Mm. The, the, frame, the way he frames the business as, as a software firm, it's, it's, you know, you could argue this both ways, couldn't you, Chad? I mean, the, the mm -hmm. truth be told is that the hardware is gorgeous. Equally, OS X is just the most robust, sturdy, never-fail OS I've ever used, and I love it to death. We're rec both recording the show on OS X. I, I, I think, you know, he's, he's teasing us a little bit here because it's, it's yin and yang. They, I mean, they both work so well together, but the conviction. I, I think he's. I think he's kind of answering the chicken and the egg question yeah. here, or at least his perspective of you know, is it the software first or the hardware first? He's saying here, well, you need to have the compelling. Oh my gosh, I have to have it software mm. and experience side of things, and then like the icing on the cake is it's in a beautiful package, yeah, and it's elegant and it's pretty, and I want to I want to show it off. Uh, kind of kind of thing. What instantly comes to mind when you say that, Chad, is GoPro. What what Jobs has laid out here, this is what GoPro should have done. GoPro was a neat bit of hardware with terrible software and got caught out massively. Uh, I think, you know, everyone copied the hardware and then their point of difference really went away, didn't it? Yeah. It, it, know, it, it, yeah, because I think they weren't able to respond to you know the clones if mm -hmm. if you will and the the product experience behind the hardware you know it wasn't there yeah and so it was kind of a race to be commoditized very mm -hmm. very quickly and so yeah it, this gopro is the same as the chinese knockoff is the same as the eastern european knockoff etc yeah exactly exactly and i think what 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 jobs is bringing here is enormous clarity in the sequencing of things, the priority of things. In fact, one of the things when you listen to him, I mean, obviously he's a very good speaker, so he's quite convincing, but actually the content of often what he says demonstrates not only conviction, but enormous clarity and foresight in what he should do, what he shouldn't do. Uh, you'll often hear him talking about, well, that's not our business. You know, they've been very deliberate uh, in... in um, not making mistakes many tech companies have made in trying to get into content and services. Like they know which side of the bread uh, is buttered for them and they stick to it. And I think this also comes true when he talks about when you build and when you partner. So let's have a listen now to Steve talking about this idea of when to partner instead of building. We don't think one company can do everything. So you've got to partner with people that are really good at stuff. Like we're not, I mean, Maybe Microsoft is, is great at search. We're not. We're not trying to be great at search. So we partner with people that are great at search. And 
we don't know how to do maps on the back end. We know how to do a great, the best maps client in the world, but we don't know how to do the back end. So we partner with people that know how to do the back end. And what we want to do is be that, uh, that consumer's device and that consumer's experience wrapped around all this information and, and, and things we can deliver to them in a wonderful user interface, in a coherent product. And so in some cases, you know, we have to do more work than others. You know, in the case of, of, of iTunes, there wasn't a music delivery service that was any good, and we had to do one, so we'll do one. But in other cases, there's companies doing a way better job because we're not as, as good at this stuff as other people are, and we'd love to partner with them. And so, you know, we selectively do that. And um, I think it's, it's really hard for one company to do everything. Here's Steve kind of uh, going back to the, you know, the, the management greats like Peter Drucker and, and this idea of core mm -hmm. competencies and really mm -hmm. staying in your lane and, and doing what you're best at and then having strategic partnerships to, 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 to leverage and, and then place the really big bets when, when you have to or when you're well positioned to. It's not to say that you, yeah. you, don't, you don't try anything new because you don't want to, but it's kind of like, pick the best opportunity. Don't just try everything. Or as he says at the end, don't, don't try to be the best at everything because you'll be good at nothing. Yeah. This, this really reminds me, Chad, uh, talking about this is, uh, I think Yahoo is a great case study of a company that could have listened more to, to Steve on this partner instead of build. Don't you think? Don't you think that was a company that just spread itself across so many things? You're just like, what business are you not in? Right. Yeah. In the same way that kind of, that AOL did too. Exactly. That's a great. That that was even a forerunner, which makes the whole Yahoo thing even more of a crime because you're like, guys, did you just not learn from what AOL just did? But here's the interesting thing: there was this very famous uh, memo wrote, and it was called, I think it was the the pea the peanut butter memo, Yahoo. Let's let's. This is, yes, the Peanut Butter Manifesto. So this guy, Brad Garlinghouse, wrote this memo way back in the day, 2006, and said, hey, everyone, we're not doing what Steve Jobs is talking about here. We're trying to do a little bits of everything, and we're doing none of them well. And this is exactly what Steve Jobs is talking about. He didn't want to do anything badly. So he was willing to decide to cut back functionality on a, on a device. He was willing to get out of or stay out of different businesses order to focus. And I think AOL, Yahoo are all examples of companies that didn't know when to partner instead of build. They invested loads of cash, got themselves into heaps of problems. And, and this really speaks to understanding market dynamics. I mean, don't you get the feeling, Chad, that, that the map in Steve Jobs's mind of where everyone fitted in the ecosystem was like razor sharp, like he knew exactly how everything was moving. Yeah, and I think it was very simple. In his, I think he could keep in his mind's eye what Apple's focus was at each point in its history, going all the way back to the Apple One and the Apple Two computers. It's like going to have a low-cost computer that mm. engineers and programmers can write their own programs for, which mm -hmm. was, again, very innovative at that time. Mm. Um, and that's all they did was just, you know, build that thing. And I think if you look at each each new product category that has spun out of Apple, it's it's a very similar thing. It's the the hyper focus positioned against all other alternatives uh in such an effective way that 
I think really just increases the chances uh, that it will be successful in the marketplace. Absolutely. And um, this next clip we've got just speaks to how he understands all those machinations and what how he was very contrarian to how others thought about Apple. Like people would all have a, like a common philosophy about how Apple works, whether it was only for elite people or whether it was in this massive rivalry with Microsoft, but he saw things differently. So let's actually listen to him break things down. And this is going back in history a while, but it's very powerful thinking here on the fallacy of zero-sum dynamics within competition. Uh, Apple was in, in very serious trouble. And um, what was really clear was that if the game was a zero-sum game where for Apple to win, Microsoft had to lose, then Apple was going to lose. But that's a lot of people's heads were still in that place. Why was that from your perspective? Well, a lot of people's heads were in that place at Apple mm -hmm. uh, and, and even in the customer base because, you know, Apple had invented a lot of this stuff and Microsoft was being successful and Apple wasn't and there was jealousy and this and that. There was just a lot of reasons for it that don't matter. But the net result of it was, was there were too many people at Apple and in the Apple ecosystem playing the game of, for Apple to win, Microsoft has to lose. And it was clear that you didn't have to play that game because Apple wasn't going to beat Microsoft. Apple didn't have to beat Microsoft. Apple had to remember who Apple was because it had forgotten who Apple was. And uh, so to me, it was pretty essential to break that paradigm. It's, it's clear he's talking here in 2007 when Microsoft was a much bigger company than Apple at the time. But it's very clear that you can see Steve Jobs not taking that zero-sum point of view, going all the way back to the founding of the company. I don't think Steve ever saw what they were doing at Apple as taking away from other companies and vice versa. I don't think he saw what companies like IBM and HP and, and Microsoft were doing as necessarily taking away from Apple. And I think the biggest lesson for me is that that is so freeing. Like mm. if you just understand that like, uh, you know, that it's not a zero sum game and it's not a dog eat dog kind of world. You're like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I don't, ha I mean, yes, you need to be abreast of what's going on, but you don't have to feel threatened uh, or cornered or vulnerable about the competition. I think that's why he was able to take such huge bets. Yeah. And I, it feels like when you work in an environment around Steve Jobs, whether it's at Pixar or at Apple, that it feels like ideas are the currency of discussion. Um, mm -hmm. And whether it's product ideas or business ideas, to me, I think it's refreshing and, and it's a big reminder to all of us that we sometimes get so charged up and so we work so hard on our businesses uh, in the day-to-day -day, uh, that we get in the weeds and we forget to ask some of those bigger questions and discuss bigger ideas because we're just so busy executing. But don't you get the sense as we're getting into this that this is all about ideas for, for Steve Jobs? Yes, the the freedom to the freedom and the curiosity to come up with the ideas and test the ideas and not care like wh what the other people are doing um which is funny because well, yes that's probably the biggest thing to try and resist uh -huh. you know the group uh -huh. thing and the classic thing that happens in business categories is everybody behaves to what we call the category norm so if everyone in the detergent industry does it with a certain way or 
does uh, retailing or advertising a certain way, over time everyone starts to copy each other and it becomes... Yeah, it all reverts to the mean. Yeah. Yeah, and everything absolutely. becomes the same, and then everyone is, are the the blue corporate drones in the 1984 <laughs> ad, right? <laughs> yeah, and so you actually found a, a great clip, um, kind of talking about this freedom and flow of ideas and autonomy that exists inside of Apple, and how that's contributed to its success. One of the keys to Apple is Apple's an incredibly collaborative company, and so. You know how many committees we have at Apple? No. Zero. We have no committees. No committees. We are, a ver we are organized like a startup. One person's in charge of iPhone OS software. One person's in charge of Mac hardware. One person's in charge of iPhone hardware engineering. Another person's in charge of worldwide marketing. Another person's in charge of operations. It's, we're organized like a startup. We're the biggest startup on the planet. And we all meet for three hours, once a week, and we talk about everything we're doing, the whole business. And there's tremendous teamwork at the top of the company, which filters down to tremendous teamwork throughout the company. And teamwork is dependent on trusting the other folks to come through with their part without watching them all the time, but trusting that they're going to come through with their parts. And that's what we do really well. And we're great at figuring out how to divide things up into these great teams that we have and all work on the same thing, touch bases frequently, and bring it all together into a product. We do that really well. And so what I do all day is meet with teams of people and work on ideas and solve problems to make new products, to make new marketing programs, whatever it is. And are people willing to tell you you're wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, other than snarky journalists. I mean, people that oh, work Oh, yeah. For no, we have wonderful arguments. And do you win them all? Or? Oh, no. I wish I did. <laughs> oh, see, you can't. <laughs> if you want to hire great people and have them stay working for you, you have to let them make a lot of decisions, and you have to, you have to be run by ideas, not hierarchy. The best ideas have to win. So, Otherwise, good people don't stay. But you must be more than a facilitator who runs meetings. You obviously contribute your own ideas. I contribute ideas, sure. Well, I, why would I be there if I didn't? Mm -hmm. Why would I be there if I didn't contribute ideas? I just love this idea of you cannot even dream of having the best people in the world if you're not going to have the freedom to explore and to live by big ideas. I think that was a very interesting relationship he drew there. If you want great people, not only do you need a great mission, but you need to give the freedom for the ideas on how you're going to make that come to life. You have to give incredible freedom to celebrate. And I even love the fact that he's like, we argue about ideas. And, it, and I've seen in my experience, if that's done well, if, if really frank, candid discussion can happen around ideas, it makes them better. And you really start to feel that he's crafting those conversations all the time, don't you? Yeah. And I'd be very curious how it actually is or, or was inside of Apple at the time and, and is today. But I think what this is reinforcing for me is the importance of the diversity of input to get the ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and I really mm -hmm. do think that the best companies are you know diverse and inclusive and transparent so that 
all perspectives and everyone's ideas can get kind of into the hopper, if you will. Yeah. And then yeah. at yeah. that point, uh, you have the, the furious, intense, intense debate you know, kind of backed by the things that you and I love, like yeah. rapid prototyping and working closely with customers, et cetera. Yes. And then giving the teams the autonomy to just go do it. Exactly. The one thing I want to add to your formula there is like you just get a crazy bunch of people together, diverse and interesting. But the one thing I want to stress is that if they don't have, if they don't feel the safety to share mm -hmm. wild, wacky, crazy ideas, it can be as diverse as you like, but if everyone's in a state of fear, it ain't going to work. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that if I, we could look at many products that have come out out of Apple, and if, if just one idea didn't make it, I think it could have broken. You know that product or or service, mm. like everything mm. that was put into the iPhone, like you know his kind of famous reveal of it's an iPod, a camera, uh, you know, he just like keep web browser, phone. You know, if yeah. one of those things was kind of left out, and I'm sure it yeah. was, you know, Lucy in the back that was like, you know, what, what if we like stick maps and navigation onto this onto this thing? And well, the famous one, Chad, was that he wasn't into the App Store. It wasn't until Gen three that the App Store came, and it was actually mm -hmm. the team came to him and said, "We got to have an App Store." Mm -hmm. Isn't that isn't that amazing? A huge billion dollar business now, iTunes. The whole thing, it's, you know, the thing is like, but it, as much as it is about ideas, it's also about people. And, you know, what's interesting is uh, so far we've heard quite a lot of conversation about ideas, breakthrough strategies, but uh, he started to allude then. I thought it was really important that he attached that great people only come if they can work on great ideas. And I think that's really important takeaway for us. And to, to remind ourselves of it is you cannot be the one guy with all or girl with all the ideas and everyone else is executing. I think it's very clear that even Steve's like, yeah, even I don't get it right all the time. Yeah. And we've got an, another really good clip, really just to, to hear in Steve's words. He talked about in the last clip, you know, I just go and meet with teams all across the company to, to get things done. And so here's some more about his philosophy on how he's brought together the right people to execute on those ideas. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys who, who kept each other's kind of negative tendencies in check. Uh, they balanced each other and, and, and the sum was greater than the, the total was greater than the sum of the parts. And that's how I see business. You know, great, great things in business are never done by one person. They're done by a, they're done by a team of people. And, and we've got that here at Pixar. Um, and we've got that at Apple as well. And so that's, that's what lets me do this. Well, you know, with the Beatles, when they were together, uh, they did truly brilliant, innovative work. And when they split up, they did good work, but it was, it, 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 it was never the same. And I, I see business that way too. It's really always a team. Yeah, um, a lot to discuss here. I think what's, what's really interesting is, you know, successful companies, you will often find there's two founders. You'll often find that there's this very early team that sticks around that, you know, and I love this idea of modeling it off the Beatles. Um, and they often have formative years. All the, there's like a correlation. If you look in history, all these great sporting teams, music bands, business teams, they all had their equivalent of starting off in the garage for a year or two, 
where things, where the bonds came together. But I, I just honestly r- cannot enforce enough. Everybody listening and Chad, from, from me to you, one of the things I observe in the world is that great products can only be built by great teams. You cannot build a great product if there's not a great team. It just will not happen. Do you see this in your world when you when you're working? Can you see like you know basically great teams equals great work? Does this come true for you? Yeah, I I have to work at this every week. Uh, yeah. You know, to surround myself with the best collaborators, uh, both on on my side and, and the client side, to be sure that our creative vision comes to light and. I th- I think you know, S- Steve has he's had many different partnerships over the years, both in in, in co-founding Apple and co-founding Pixar. Um, he, he does a pretty good job of of ex- shining the light on the teams that are doing the work. I mean, yes, he does get up there and, and present you know the the reveal on on stage. But I think, at least in my exposure to him, he, he does a really good job of, of calling out the teams that, that make the products and the services possible. And I think it's because as, as he's told us here, it's like it, it doesn't get done unless you're working like the Beatles. Well, half the thing is, you know, nobody can present as well as him. So yeah. <laughs> you kind of, even if it was your idea, you'd want him to present your idea because he'll do it much better than anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. And we could do probably a whole show on, uh, you know, the storytelling and, the and presentation techniques <laughs> of, of, of the keynotes over the years. I know that I've definitely cribbed and uh, stolen a, a few ideas from, from the way he, he presents things, uh, definitely. Well, the nice, the nice thing is that a part of his whole thing is preparation. He was apparently famous for massive amounts of preparation. Yeah, and, and the, the Steve Jobs movie that you called out uh, starring Michael Fassbender, you definitely see that because the the kind of storytelling uh, frame is you only see everything play out in the preparation for different launches over the course of Apple and Steve's history. So mm. you only get these kind mm. of small windows mm. into uh, <laughs> into what's happening, like right before he goes on stage, and you see him, you know, yelling at people about projectors and faulty prototypes and. Yeah. Uh, spotlights <laughs> yeah. and all those kinds of things. So yeah, he's yeah. he's definitely a stickler for details when it comes to that. Yeah, but but again, that was never done until Steve Jobs came on. Nobody presented like a Hollywood showcase. Nobody uh, and did everyone's that. copying them now. Yeah, e- every, right. everyone. Exactly. Um, oh my gosh. So like just just I'm like recapping in my brain here. I mean, clarity on he knows what business he's in. He's no he knows the dynamics between partners and competitors and he's not just you know, small minded stealing a little bit from this person to to that person. He sees the bigger picture. Very powerful. I love this this I love the idea. I mean, for me this is sort of heaven. Companies run by ideas. I think that's very exciting. And the fact that he sees that it's not all about him, I think that was the big transformation that he had. He, he Towards the end of his career, as Ed Catmull alluded to, is he really started to understand the human behavioral dynamics of companies and he really saw that great teams equals great work. I mean, what a onslaught of ideas and inspiration and wisdom. Ugh. 
I mean, it's it's exhausting. There's so much, Chad. Yeah. Well, I think we are going to have to do something a little unprecedented for the uh, the podcast here, Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sitting here looking at a a list of like a dozen more clips from Steve. It sounds like we have to go into the forbidden dark of a part two show. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there's so many great things that we've already learned, whether it's kind of Steve's conviction and positioning and kind of audacity, you know, to to launch an ad like 1984 when they're launching uh, the Macintosh. Or I actually really enjoyed him talking about how competition doesn't have to be a zero sum game. And if you don't see it that way, you actually have more freedom to to do more uh, with things. But we have so many more clips on mm-hmm. probably what many of you are, are looking to learn uh, most is you know, what what are Steve's thoughts on innovation, how to innovate? Um, yes. How did he do it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I know that many of you probably have some favorite uh, inspirational quotes or, or philosophical quotes from Steve because he had some interesting views on life and, and the way he uh, both you know developed and learned as as a young man and also kind of as he was uh, in his later years and after mm. his diagnosis for cancer, kind of reflecting on his life and, and whatnot. He also has lots of, of really interesting perspective and, and things to, to share with us. So that's just part of what we have in store for part so two of so uh, the much. Steve Jobs show. Absolutely. I mean, we've got great thoughts around, we're, we're going to hear from the CEO of Nike. We get great stories from from him. We're going to hear from Larry Ellison, from Steve himself, and I think it's going to be it's going to be the innovation piece. So how he created the products and the things that he did, and what we can actually use ourselves. I think also what I like about the the second show is we're going to have a lot on his sort of philosophies, um, and both of those two topics are going to work nicely against the history and the strategy that we've heard about today. And I mean, I'm so excited to do that that next show. But we're also very keen to hear from everybody uh, what they liked about not only Steve Jobs, but about the Apple series so far. We are going to do this second Steve Jobs show. We'll follow that up with a Tim Cook show. Um, and we might even do a bit of a recap because as you, as you r- might remember, you know, we had our Jonathan Ive uh, show way back in the day in our designer series just so many amazing people at one company, such a rich history, such influence on business and culture. I really, I just really love this confidence and conviction to go and do things that are different to others. I mean, it was really the Think Different show for me today. What about you, Chad? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you got my brain going all, you know, through Angela Aron's show and mm. Steve Wozniak and Johnny Ivey and you know, we've still got Tim Cook to come, another second half of the Steve Jobs show. It, it's been really fun to take a deep dive into a company with such a storied history, so many successes w- with some failures too, but certainly no lack of lessons to be learned from all of these people and what they've done at yeah. Apple. So I'm, I'm really yeah. excited for potentially three more shows um, as, as we kind of complete our tour uh, to date of... Uh, of all the happenings inside of, of Apple. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just want to encourage everyone who's listening to send us feedback. Just go to moonshots.io and you'll find everything about the show. You'll find the show notes, the links, 
everything's going to be there. You can listen to the archive, catch up on some of our content and blogs. So that's moonshots.io. Chad, I, I just want to thank you for, for being part of this epic Apple series. I'm, uh, I'm just so, it's so energizing getting so much inspiration from, from just one person. It, it, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, we, we sat down with a list of so many clips and I think we realized pretty quickly we we're going to have to split this up in, into two shows. But um, I think if it was going to happen for anyone, it was, it was going to happen uh, w- with Steve. Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks for all of your ideas, contributions, your wizardry with all the audio production technology, uh, Chad. It's so, so great to do this with you and with our listeners too. And how would you most like to hear back from our listeners, Chad? Uh, I would like anyone that is listening that has gotten at least hopefully one nugget of insight that you've applied to your day to day to stop on by the iTunes store and just leave us a review. Five stars if, if you think it's worth it. But um, I love uh, seeing the, the new reviews pop up there. And that, of course, helps other aspiring entrepreneurs and innovators come across the show. Absolutely. So uh, reach out to us at the iTunes store. It's the Moonshots podcast. This is halfway through Steve Jobs, but it's the end of show 35. Uh, A big thank you to you, Chad, and everybody listening. We'll be back soon with the Moonshots podcast. Take care. We'll catch you next time. And that's a wrap.